1: Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we try to bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Today is a recording from the Instagram Live on the 4th of April, and I tried to repeat all the questions, provide some in-depth answers, and I thought this would be a good way uh, for us to put out some more content. So the idea would be every Friday we'll release a you know formally recorded podcast or Q&A type thing, and then every Monday uh, we can do either a live stream or Instagram Live sort of thing uh, that's recorded Recorded for this format to help keep you guys in the loop on new information and our current thoughts on things. So, without further ado, here we go. All right. Hey, everyone, welcome back to Instagram Live. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum with Barbell Medicine. Uh, this will probably also go on the podcast. This is from April 4th. So, doing a little uh, Instagram Live. Thank you for joining us. Uh, A few announcements. One, if you're not signed up yet for our newsletter, please head over to the barbellmedicine.com website and do that. If you uh, are waiting for another podcast to drop, hey, we're going to put one up tomorrow. So be on the lookout for that. If you're listening to this in the future, (laughs) the other podcast had already come out. So I'm trying to do something at least every Friday. And the new training vlog goes up on Wednesday. It's uh, April Uh, 10th. All right. So we're going to try to get some questions from you guys and see if I can provide some unique insight into this sort of thing. All right. Let's see what we've got. Scroll up here to the top. Ben Tarnowski says, I got accepted to my university's RD program a couple weeks ago. And I would like to thank you guys at Barbell Medicine for the inspiration and career goals. Hey man, congratulations. That's a big deal. Congrats. Nice work, man. Uh, Karen, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Coach Jamar? Had a great time at the S- San Antonio seminar. Hey, Thanks for coming out. Also, strong squats, my friend. I think he ended up squatting uh, like four twenty-five or four thirty-five for an easy set of five. Just chilling. All right. The question from Adam Darby is: Is the four-day hypertrophy template? So. Uh, templates, some, some templates on our website under the shop tab as uh, the four day hypertrophy template structured as an upper lower format. No, it is not for full body workouts. And I think, you know, so I'm in the process, we're in the process of updating the templates. It's really not even an update it serves as like a, uh, uh, complete like revamp kind of different, a little bit different direction. I probably would say that our GPP hypertrophy templates are more power building than anything else. And if you really had to describe like what is power building as a thing, I think that you're, you're, you have to make the concession that you, you value the importance of the power lifts kind of by definition, if you're doing a power building program. So the squat, the bench press and the deadlift, if you didn't place some value on those, those particular lifts and the performance in those lifts. Okay. That I think would be a more traditional hypertrophy program because really it doesn't matter. Right. So if you do, for instance, a low bar back squat, right. And you know, you're really trying to get your strength up on that lift because you value your performance in that lift. Like that's totally fine. But from just a hypertrophy standpoint, a leg press will grow your legs just as much, if not potentially more than a low bar back squat and i know that's her- that sounds like heresy but if you really just look at like motor unit recruitment range of motion and then the volume that you could you know tolerate those three things leg press may have an advantage from just a hypertrophy standpoint so if you're like doing a power building type template you would have to take you have to place some level of importance on the squat the bench press and the deadlift and i think you're you make compromises in the you know overall structure of the template, maybe not compromises, but you make choices, um, on the template based on that desire. So that's cool. It's a cool, I mean, if you like training that way, it's great. But, um, I think that that's how I would describe it versus just a pure hypertrophy template. And there are the, the existing templates are full body, uh, each day. Yeah. All right. Moving on. How to fix left, right shoulder flexibility and balance on the squat. I, I don't think that I would unless it's manifesting as some tor- sort of, you know, uh, weird issue with the squat that's causing inefficiency or uh, inconsistencies in your squat technique. So meaning that the bar is rolling all over the place or like sometimes it shifted to the right, sometimes it shifted to the left and it's really, you know, causing issues. In that case, I think I have a coach or a friend just make sure that you're centering the bar and that, uh, you know, your grip width is as yeah, symmetrical as you can manage it. You know, I wouldn't hyper be, you know, pay a bunch of attention to it, like uh, you know, focus on it all the time or anything. But I think that um, I wouldn't really do anything specific for shoulder flexibility imbalances on the squat. Um, provided you can rack the barbell. If you can't rack the barbell, then you might have switched to a different variation for a minute. What would you do with someone who has a binge eating disorder? Well, I think by DSM 5 criteria, the binge eating disorder, uh, you know, a lot of us probably fit that criteria every now and again. And I, I actually want to look it up just so I, I read it right. Let's just do the thing binge eating disorder. It's a good thing about being by the internet. Uh, let's see Oh, the DSM five not just coming up. Uh, let's see. So it's a, uh, eating disorder characterized by recurrent episodes of eating large quantities of food, often very quickly to the point of discomfort and, uh, often accompanied by a feeling of loss of control during the binge, experiencing shame, distress, or guilt afterwards and not regularly using unhealthy compensatory measures like purging to counter binge eating. Uh. Yeah, so I think it was, this is as new as 2013, so it's relatively new. Um, I think that if I had somebody who was doing this regularly and wasn't sort of responsive to my initial level of ca- like style of counseling, I'd probably refer them to a registered dietitian. Yeah, that's what I would do. Is fruit a lipogenic carbohydrate that holds fat? Uh, no, no. Yeah, fruits don't cause people to be obese. People aren't overeating on fruit and just getting, you know, crazy obese. I, I, it would be a new a new scenario that if someone was like, you know, I just eat, I eat too many bananas, and that's what that's what really did me in. You know, I know that people in certain low carb sort of uh, echo chambers have certainly said that, but. Again, most Americans, I think it's like 75% of Americans don't eat enough servings of fruit per day. And then it's like a 5% higher, like 80% of Americans don't eat enough vegetables per day. That's based on the 2015 to 2020 dietary guidelines for adults in America. They review that literature or that the prevalence of that stuff um, in there. And uh, so, yeah, most people aren't eating enough fruit and vegetables. Most people, for their vegetables, they eat potatoes and tomatoes. It's like the most commonly consumed thing. And for fruit, it's mostly fruit juice. Those are the real problems. You know, fruit juice in place of fruit, that's an issue. Not eating enough fruits and vegetables in general, that's an issue. Um, And then eating too many calories overall uh, with consumption of sugar, sweetened beverages. Those would be like my my big things, I think. Let's see. Great podcast with Mike to share. Oh, hey, thanks. Yeah. If you guys haven't listened to the Mike to share podcast, I think we did that a couple of weeks ago. It's over on there. It's on their YouTube. It's on their podcast thing. So do that. The reactive training systems one. Can a large part of your carbohydrates come from fruit? Well, sure. If you want. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Advice for lifting, lifting strength and conditioning when doing MMA. Yeah, so I think that if I was trying to prepare an individual for a mixed martial arts match and you're looking at it from like a strength perspective, so strength is force production in a specific context. I mean, you could argue that strength is force production, period, but then when you test strength, when you evaluate strength, uh, it's in a specific context. And so, you know, you can't really discuss strength and like being stronger or Uh, or less strong uh, without particular context. So strength is force production in a specific context. And I think you'd have to agree that most of the positions that you're creating force in for MMA are dissimilar or, or at least not repeated very often. Meaning that, you know, you're throwing punches and you're throwing and you're, and you're, you're, you're kicking and stuff. And perhaps those have similar ranges of motion, similar, uh, uh, movement strategies. But like when you're actually sparring or, uh, you know, on the ground with another individual, I think that you run a wide gamut of joint angles and muscle lengths and different ranges of motion and contraction types, et cetera. So what I'm getting at is that there's no like very clearly identifiable Things that you'd want to get stronger in, and or and specialize in, you know. For instance, the low bar back squat wouldn't be like the best squat to do, the only squat to do, because the specific ranges of motion and muscle length and contraction type, etc., are you know widely or you see that all the time in MMA. Because you don't. Rather, I think you could make an argument that you would I be best served by. Gaining proficiency in a wide variety of contexts that uh, are related to squatting, pressing, and pulling. So I would probably train the squat with multiple different variations over the course of a week. Uh, I would train the press or pressing, you know, from shoulder girdle stuff, shoulder girdle strength with multiple different types of variations over the course of the week. I would train pulling, same thing. Um, and I think you could make a case for some higher velocity uh, training, which would be done at a lighter load because the force velocity curve suggests that the lower the weight on the bar, the lower the resistance, the greater the potential velocity, meaning that the fastest that you could do a squat, for instance, would either be with an empty bar or with no bar. Um, and then the, that's high velocity force production. Whereas low velocity force production is like a one RM squat at a powerlifting meet. But I think you can make a case for some of the training also being high velocity and lower load, like, you know, 30 to 60% of a one RM, for instance. Um, I'd probably end up having somebody who's actually got about coming up. I think that I would initially start them at like three times a week resistance training, um, two or three exercises per session. Um, again, with a pretty wide variety of movements that they repeat probably weekly. And then eventually I tapered that down to twice per week and the lifts would, it'd probably be full body. So an upper body and a lower, lower body lift. And then I think half of the work or maybe a third of the work would be high velocity work. And then the conditioning stuff is actually more easy to describe because you'd want things that mimic the, um, the uh, energy systems required for a match. So, for instance, if you know that the bouts are three or minutes or five minutes or two, whatever they are, you can do uh, uh, work in that range. Um, I would probably approach it from both ends. The way I try to think of it is like a funnel. At the tip of the funnel is the test. So, let's say it's five three-minute rounds. And, you know, and you have, let's say, two minutes in between. So that's a pretty aerobic kind of effort, although a heavy glycolytic component at the beginning, certainly. Uh, but that probably diminishes as you get more and more fatigued in any, in any event, kind of getting in the weeds there. But what I would do is suggest that, you know, outside of actual sports specific practice where you're getting conditioning for the specific, you know, sort of um, fight specific demands of the sport, I would probably do another session per week of longer, uh, lower intensity stuff, especially if someone doesn't have a good aerobic base would be steady state cardio. Um, And I I might actually just stick with that uh, and do, you know, actually do that two or three times depending on their level of conditioning and how much they're actually training for MMA. And, how much the resistance training because, you know, at some point you run out of time. So I think the way that would work for me beginning, like, you know, for 16, 20 weeks out from a, about, you know, it's three times per week resistance training, maybe three times per week steady state plus uh, rolling, you know, for MMA. Well, I guess that's BJJ, but uh shows you. I don't actually do MMA or BJJ. I don't do any of that. Um, but I would actually, but practicing a sport would be another, you know, I assume they're doing it at least twice a week. If they're doing it more than that, I might cut out, you know, one of the conditioning sessions, one of the resistance training sessions, or just put the resistance training at the end, you know, after the sport specific practice. And then as you got closer to a meet, closer to a match, uh, if it was important, I would cut down the frequency of training, cut down the volume. And then, uh, yeah, have I would go, you know, to the match. That was a long answer. Sorry. Do the effects of creatine go away if you forget to take it one day but continue the next day? No. As best as we know, the washout period is anywhere between 7 to 14 days. Yeah. So, in fact, when you look at data on creatine administration – Um, you, and they're trying to figure out like how much of it is absorbed and, you know, where it's going, et cetera, et cetera. And they're trying, and they use like different types of creatine. So like creatine monohydrate compared to creatine ethyl ester or crealkaline or, you know, creatine hydrochloride. If they do this, this crossover design where people take creatine monohydrate, you know, the first week, and then you monitor how well they absorb it. And then, that those same people are later going to take crealcaline or something like that or the other type of creatine. You have to give them a washout period and usually it's 7 to 14 days because that's how long it takes to get out of your system. Um, in any event, just as an aside, creatine monohydrate is 100% absorbed. And uh, yeah, creatine HCL also is absorbed well. It's just not absorbed any better than creatine monohydrate and it's more expensive. Anyway, the other stuff does it doesn't get absorbed and I wouldn't use it. Let's see. Spread the floor cue with your feet for the squat. Is that a useful cue? And do you recommend it? I think almost any cue, when used in the right, con- you know, the right setting, can be useful. I've never used that particular cue, and I don't. Therefore, I don't really have any experience using it, and I don't find it useful. Because if I've coached a thousand people or over a thousand people to squat, which is certainly true. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not like weird flex, but okay. Like, oh, dude, you've coached a thousand people squat, like, neato, gang. I mean, it's just a, con- you know, it's a conservative estimate over the past decade. Um, having, if I've coached that many people out of squat and I've never used that cue, I'm just not sure how useful it is, you know? Yeah. Thoughts on the volume debate between Lyle and Mike? I don't know that. I'm on necessarily one side or the other. Uh, mainly I, I guess if I had to side with somebody more it'd be Dr. Isertel. So just a background, Lyle and Mike were I guess having a disagreement about a Schoenfeld paper that recently came out, and there was some, you know, issues with the paper as far as like doing his own ultrasonography on to measure outcomes and statistics and stuff and I think that those some the criticisms are valid right so in science you can criticize something but the doesn't mean that the data is bad and doesn't mean that there's nothing to take away from the study and I think that's how Mike was interpreting it, interpreting it and I, I guess Lyle the problem was is just the way he talks to people and his presence on the internet you know I think I don't have a personal problem with Lyle, and I think that he's done a lot of good as far as getting information out. but I also know people that he's you know, rubbed the wrong way. and I think that happens on the internet. but I think we're all trying to get people to exercise, to change their nutrition, to empower themselves, to improve their own self-efficacy so that we can make a healthier, um, you know, population healthier community better community and support each other and so i I think sometimes we miss the boat we just by arguing amongst ourselves and i I don't know if that's useful though i'm certainly guilty of it so anyway all right ashley cola what is the rep set scheme on the gpp endurance template you're gonna do some sixes you You're to do some eights you can do some uh, amrap stuff yeah yeah you're all over the place Let's see. I can make a guess, but what are your thoughts on postural restoration institute principles and methods? Uh, that's going to be a no for me, dog. Yeah. Doc, I got the four-day hypertrophy template, but I found out that I can only work out three days a week due to work. Should I just scrape one day off or do I need to do other modifications? Yeah, I think uh, I would just cut the fourth day. Yeah, easy enough. I mean, just try that first. You know, the other thing that you could think about doing is take that first movement from day four, put it at the end of day one, or replace the third movement from day one with the first movement from day four, and then cut the rest of day four off. That's that's probably how I would do it. Yeah. How to decide whether the three-day or four-day hypertrophy template is for me coming off the bridge 1.0 or wanting to focus on weight loss. Yeah, the way I view it is like the three-day is the you know de facto default one that you should go to if you've never done one of our templates before, if you're just coming off the bridge. Uh for instance, it's fine movement, fine. Just like so HLM would be fine. Um and then uh so would the bridge 3.0. It's just I think going from another to another three-day program is fine. Um, unless your time, you you get some time constraint issues. So, um, I, that's what I would do initially the three day one. And then after that, I would probably run one of our strength based templates like the bridge 3.0. And then, uh, after that, you might think about going to four days per week. If you want to train four days per week, <laughs> something to think about <laughs> how to differentiate a tendon injury from a muscular injury. I probably wouldn't. On a uh, off – like offhand. So you have pain. That's the thing. And I wouldn't start thinking about the injury like, oh, try to diagnose it unless it's going to change what you do. Um, as far as how you would diagnose it, I mean you would expect a muscle belly injury rupture to be – to have a lot of bleeding and bruising. You wouldn't expect that with a tendon injury. Tendon injury – depending on the nature of that injury is usually, you know, can be pinpoint, but can be diffuse. I mean, it really depends. It can be insidious at onset. It can be acute and sharp at onset. If you ruptured it, although, you know, really depends. Like, are we talking about biceps tendonitis? Or are we talking about a biceps tendon rupture? Uh, so it depends. I think that you'd be best served by going to our pain and rehab forum, barbomedicine.com, and ask a question to Dr. Michael Ray, and or Dr. Derek miles, and they can weigh in on that. And then if, uh, you know, you don't get a satisfactory answer, you need some more specialized care, then maybe a consult with them would be, would be good. Just finished the bridge 3.0, which peak template novice or advanced? Uh, I don't think that there's a novice peak template. Yeah. So I would just pick one of the peaking templates. If you want to test your one RMS, like that's a fine way to do it. Uh, On the other hand, maybe you should sign up for a meet and go do that. Repeat the bridge 3.0, then test. You know, use the peak to go into a meet where it actually counts. You know, do acute resistance training induced hormones uh, significantly contribute to muscular hypertrophy? Uh, As far as we can tell, no. Yeah, hormones are all over the place during exercise. We think that uh, most of the hormonal changes occur secondary you know, the, as a function of uh, creating energy, mobilizing energy stores. Testosterone all over the map as well. Growth hormone tends to go up as a uh, in order to liberate free fatty acids, increase free fatty acid oxidation. Um, but none of those, the like swings in hormones have been associated with improvements in hypertrophy uh an improvements in strength either basically if you were trying to change your training methodology around to improve testosterone levels that's uh yeah that's a fool's errand same thing for like growth hormone levels uh, especially because again those things don't matter within the normal physiological you know sort of uh, ranges so if someone has a high testosterone level within normal it doesn't matter uh, compared to a low testosterone level within normal range, you're, you know, they've done studies on this everywhere from sedentary folks to uh, Olympic level athletes, and it just doesn't correlate with performance, doesn't, or or other side effects like fatigue, sexual, uh, you know, like libido, impotence, stuff like that. So anyway, moving on. Uh, do you think someone who is risk averse I assume you mean risk averse, not risk adverse. Yes. Do you think someone who is risk averse is subject to less optimal results using RPE over a risk taker given over the long run RPE will be scored lower for the risk averse person? Over the long run, RPE will be scored higher. Oh, yeah, I see. Okay, so I'm going to reread this question. Do you think someone who is risk averse is subject to less optimal results using RPE over a risk taker? Apparently, is that someone who overshoots their RPE? Uh, no, I don't because I think that the person who overrates their RPE, you know, is likely to still see markedly a marked benefit, whereas the person who overshoots, you know, is likely to have some level of compromise result. But it doesn't really matter how accurate you are. As, I mean – You, As long as you're consistently using it and and trying, that's the goal. I wouldn't worry about am I overdoing it or underdoing it. I wouldn't worry about it. It's all going to shake out in the end, and you're using it anyway. You're using RPE anyway, whether you want to be or not. The example I gave yesterday was like if you're – Let's say that the coach, your coach, tells you you're going to squat 75% of your one RM for five sets of five, and you warm up and you do your first set of five. It's supposed to be at 75% of your one rep max. Feels real heavy. At the end of that first set, you feel like you maybe could have done two more reps. Now, just as an aside, a five rep max is about 86% of a one RM. And so you're, you know, 11% lighter than that. It should be, you know, rp 6 really easy, 75%. I mean, you're working, but it's still rp 6 rp 7 maybe. Uh, meaning that you have like three reps left in the tank, four reps left in the tank, something like that. So you do the first set and you've only got two reps left. Okay, so you have two choices now. Choice number one, I'm just going to, you know undergo my voluntary hardship and do the rest of the, you know, four sets of five at this weight that appears to be too heavy compared to what 75% should be, should be like, you know, you don't get a gold star at the end of that. You just did the workout. Like congratulations. It's lifting weights. Like, okay, no one's living or dying by this. Or you say, Hey, you know, I know that 75% is supposed to feel and move a little bit faster than this. So perhaps my historical 1RM that I'm basing this percentage off of is not accurate for my performance level today. Maybe I'm going to take the weight down a little bit. Oh, well, look what you just did there. You auto-regulated the load. You changed the load based on important factors that going into your performance level that day so that you could get the correct stress, not just... The prescribed stress, not just the prescribed numbers. Um, And so I think that second option is probably better, you know, than the first one. What is the most challenging food you've ever prepared? Oh, honestly, like I made my own Reuben sandwich like I did the whole deal. Right. So I made the pastrami. Right. I brined it. I cured it. And then I smoked I smoked the brisket. I made the rye bread. I made the mayonnaise or the Russian, you know, I made the mayonnaise to make the Russian dressing. I did the whole thing. That was probably the most intense, but also the most rewarding. Opinions on doctors who recommend patients don't squat deadlift. And how do you deal with clients who tell you their doctor has told them this? I mean, my opinion on those doctors is that, that, is a terrible thing that you're doing to people. You're harming them. And I think that we all swore an oath to like not do that. You know, (laughs) that being said, I I don't think it comes from a place of malice. You know, people aren't doing it on purpose to be like, Oh, we're going to take down big barbell. We're going (laughs) to, you know, that's not what's happening. Rather. I think that it's just a comes from a place of ignorance. And so we're hoping to kind of bridge that gap uh, between, medicine, and strength and conditioning. Um, so if they're open to learning about it, then, you know, I think we're obviously the, we're a good choice for that. You know, we wrote an article for up to date. It's there. It's in the literature. You can go look at it. Go look at it. If you're a medical professional, as far as dealing with clients, I mean, if the client comes to me, they're already hook line, they're sold, right? Like they know that like, I'm an expert in the field. Like I'm a doctor also like, and so I don't have to, you know, argue too much with that I think if you're a personal trainer, if you're, um, you know, uh, somebody who's not a medical doctor and you're trying to combat a medical doctor's advice, then I, I think it's more empowering the person, the client that you're talking to. So if the if the doctor said something like you shouldn't squat, and you shouldn't deadlift, the pa- it's on the patient to ask why, right? And, you know, hope, you hope that the doctor is going to be honest and say, actually, I have no reason for this. Um, you know, on the other hand, if they say something silly, like, because it increases your risk of injury, all you have to do is go look at the data you say, no citation desperately needed. I mean, I have to say it like a jerk, but there's evidence does not suggest that that is true. So, you know, I think you have to handle concerns as they're presented to you, but ultimately I'd try, I'd flip it back around on the client or, and then in that case, the patient to talk to the doctor to make sure that, you know, they're encouraging of their lifestyle. I mean, I think that this is, is happening less and less especially by more educated physicians, but, uh, you know, I'm hopeful. Oh, I, I'll just say that I'm hopeful for the future thoughts. Oh, I did that one. What to do about hip impingement at the bottom of the squat? Uh, I would ask you, how do you know that you have hip impingement? Yeah. If you have hip pain, that is the thing, you know, and if you only have it with squatting, Um, then I, first thing I would do is just make sure that your, your technique looks reasonably good. And it's not that I think that the, the, uh, hip pain is necessarily secondary to form, you know, breakdown or something like that, uh, rather that the technique that you're using may put you in a, a position that you're sensitized to. And so if your toes are way out and, you know, or way in and, or if you're, uh, you know, squatting, you know. Six inches below parallel and lumbar flexion. I think it's not only inefficient and inconsistent, but also maybe sensitizing you to certain, you know, issues. So I'd make sure your form is good or has been checked out. And if it's reasonably good, then, you know, I'm not worried about that. Then I think it's more of a load management kind of deal. Um, so I'd be wondering what kind of program you're on and then what you did before that, how appropriate that programming choice was. Let's see. On my second run of the four day hypertrophy template, really enjoying the program and the jacketude. Hey, there you go. In weeks one through four would there be any detriment to doing your sets at eight first and then at seven at six? Um I think so, mainly because your your ability to get to the correct weight for the RP eight set of the day was compromised by not doing the sets leading up to that. Your performance vary can vary a ton during the during you know, a given period of time. So I wouldn't eliminate those sort of, excuse me, warm-up sets that indicate what the top weight should be. Yeah. Do certain blood types have an advantage over others when it comes to strength and performance? No. There you go. Hey, I like easy questions like that too. Sometimes. <laughs> Can you talk about your time with dynamic fitness management and any problems in the personal training field? Oh, uh, yeah. So I used to work for this company, DFM, they're out of St. Louis, a big personal training company that, uh, is contracted by a gym, a chain of gyms in St. Louis and, uh, Illinois area. And, uh, yeah, I ended up working there as a trainer and then as the director of education and, uh yeah, it was cool. I mean, I learned a lot, especially from like a business standpoint and, uh, um, also from, you know, management standpoint, like, I mean, it was just a cool opportunity and I did that, uh, also like while I was getting my master's and I had an opportunity to like kind of run my own sort of like website. It was dynamic fitness coach. It was cool. There's a lot of cool opportunities that came out of that problems. The personal training field are innumerable. So I don't want to I don't want to like go down a negative rabbit hole. I would say this, that I'm pumped that there are a lot of people getting into the personal training field because we need more people in the trenches to help, you know, to help their fellow uh, human. And, uh, yeah, so it's cool that we have a lot of personal trainers that, uh, you know, hopefully we can improve the knowledge base and the skills that they have when they're uh, working with folks. Hopefully that happens. Organic meat versus conventionally farmed meat on health. Not a big big enough difference for me from a health perspective. You can make an argument from a sustainability standpoint, but I think you really have to – that's a bigger, deeper conversation. Doc, is the St. Louis style of slicing bagels a real thing? It is a real thing, and uh, I like it. What equation do you think is best for determining maintenance calories? Oh, the uh, – mifflin saint uh equation. I think I, I did a metabolism YouTube video that I would recommend you watch. And I think I talk about it in there. Yeah. Is there anything a guy can do about gynecomastia besides surgery? So, gynecomastia is a buildup of excess tissue underneath the areola, the nipple. Uh, so, glandular tissue in a male. Uh, usually, sometimes it can be hard and painful. Sometimes it can be associated with puberty. Sometimes it can be associated with Excess adiposity or obesity, sometimes there's no real cause of it that you can readily identify. It could be anabolic steroids, it's like a bunch of things. Um, if you have excess obesity or excess adiposity and you're obese, losing body fat can help and you may find that it becomes a problem that you don't necessarily care about anymore and so you don't need to do anything about it. Uh Short of that, or if you're on anabolic steroids and you, you know, stop taking the steroids and or use a, uh, medications to lower your estrogen, which is which were increased by the anabolic steroids, then perhaps you can correct the issue. If none of those are really the sources, you know, uh, one, I would recommend seeing a doctor just to make sure there's nothing else going on. There rare cases can be breast cancer or other sort of issues you'd want to make sure are diagnosed. I forget oh, offhand, I thought there was like... Is it, an, is it an HCG screening tumor? I, I don't want to say that. I, there's some. There's some other issues that can be associated with uh, with gynecomastia. So I don't think that HCG thing was right, but. Um, certainly breast cancer has been associated with men with gynecomastia and uh, I would probably feel safer with an evaluation by a medical professional if I had that. And then also, then you can talk about options. So sometimes they'll do medication to start out with. Sometimes they'll just refer you right to the surgeon. Really all depends, especially on the clinician's sort of experience and professional judgment. So I wouldn't want to advise you any further than that. Uh, is Alan going to Brooklyn with you guys? No, he's not going to be in Brooklyn with us. Yeah. It's a big trip for him considering the kiddo, so he will not be in Brooklyn. Uh, let's see. How do you think the barbell medicine model of pain rehab can be used to combat the opioid crisis? I don't think that it can. Yeah, the opioid crisis is not due to lack of, like, pain science. Really, it's due to, you know, a... a a very robust environment for overprescribing medication, a very ripe environment for overprescribing medications that we didn't really know much about. I mean, compared to what we know now. And there's a lot of political and uh, societal expectations wrapped up in there too, that ultimately none of them are addressed by the, our, it's not, and it's not our pain model. This is like the pain science that it was known today. So I guess you could argue if we knew that, you know, 20 years ago, you know, maybe things would be different, but uh, do you think that medical marijuana is a viable alter- alternative to opioid prescription? There's some evidence suggesting that as uh, medical marijuana prescriptions go up, that opioid prescriptions go down. That being said, like medical marijuana, CBD, none of that stuff works well on pain. Um, I would rather, I mean, they just really don't. That's why they're not recommended for pain, like, until, like, as like, a third or fourth line option after people have failed other things, and there's usually reasons why they failed other things. So, no, I don't think that medical marijuana is going to, you know, end the opioid crisis or be a significant – play a significant role in, uh, in that. Med school, aging lecture, renal function, secondary aging, excess protein intake promotes renal functional decline. Uh, I would ask uh, for a citation on that one. So what you'll find when you actually look in the literature, and I, I know this because I did this lit review, and there's a YouTube video on, extra, uh, on high levels of protein intake, what it does to the kidney. It's a normal physiological response to dietary protein to increase filtration rates. And chronic exposure to relatively high dietary protein intake makes – uh, causes the kidney to change morphology and such that there's usually more glomeruli. Um, and the other, uh, aspects of the kidney involved in filtration tend to increase in mass as well. Um, so maybe it's bigger glomeruli. I I actually forget if the increase in number or bigger size. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. But, uh, in the video it's there in any event. So the renal mass, uh, increases because due to hyperfiltration, which is a, um, uh, physiological response to eating dietary protein, period. No matter what dose, just dietary protein intake. In, in any event, there's no evidence suggesting that actually causes increased rates of chronic kidney disease or kidney failure, increasing incidence of that. There's no evidence that that's, that shows that. So, period. Yeah. Let's see, what is the role of fat in peri workout nutrition? There's no real role there. Yeah. I think that the meals around a workout are likely going to be higher in calories from carbohydrates. And so from a compliance standpoint, I would generally like to put higher fat in other meals so that people don't overeat, you know, so you can have more calories, more food um, in those other meals spread out pretty evenly. And then also to the extent that fat delays gastric emptying, emptying of the contents of the stomach into the small intestine, you might not want to delay them significantly with dietary fat intake are chiropractic methods adjustments viable for recovery pain relief no there you go hey easy one uh the last training vlog we addressed that so i would watch that (laughs) what are your thoughts about inguinal hernia and recurrence rate in lifters that it's not higher than the general population yeah, in fact, genetics and obesity both have higher risk of uh, inguinal hernia than weightlifting. In fact, standing for more than six hours a day has a higher risk of inguinal hernia rate than uh, lifting. <coughs> Let's see. Do you see a problem with getting a day's worth of fruits and vegetable in one drink serving? A day's worth. I mean, I, I don't think that drinking your calories is a great idea just in general. Yeah. So, I I mean, I don't have any huge problems with it, but I think you're missing out on a lot of the fiber and the sa- sati- uh, uh, satiating effects of eating your food. So, yeah. Hey, man. What's up, Brian? How you doing, buddy? Uh, at your seminars, how much time do you guys dedicate to lectures, Q&As, lifting? So... It's, uh, let's see, eight, uh, eight. So it's 12 hour. And then there's, so it's like 22 hours of a uh, total, like for the, over the weekend. And of that, something like, um, eight hours is dedicated now, maybe like seven or six hours dedicated to lifting and one hour, one and a half hours, maybe more. Cause then the seminar goes longer to Q and A's. Yeah. Hopefully that made sense. If trying to maintain muscle while losing body fat, would you be in a calorie deficit while continuing to lift or would you switch cardio till the target weight is achieved? I mean, I would still resistance train and I'd be in a calorie deficit if I wanted to lose body fat and maintain lean body mass. That's what I would do. Doc, a coworker. And I, both trainers, did a presentation on pain, client perceptions, self-efficacy. Thank you for giving me the confidence to present this information to other fitness professionals. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. <laughs> Can anyone get comfortable with using RPE? Uh, Yeah, actually. I mean, again, there's reasonably good evidence suggesting that that's exactly how it goes, even if you're untrained. Uh, Yeah, you get better at it by using it more. Can you talk about your time? Oh, I already did that. All right. Cool. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, Let's see. What came first, the Baraki or the Feigenbaum? Well, I'm older, so I guess just chronologically I came first. There you go. Hey, Jordan, is the four-day hypertrophy bench focused? No, not really. So again, strength is specific to a particular context. So bench press strength is different from press strength. Hypertrophy, that's more of a GPP template. So we're not focused on 1RM improvements on any of the lifts. It's more about increasing lean body mass while preserving your ability to produce force to a pretty high level. That being said, some folks have PR'd on it, but if your 1RMs went down on the hypertrophy plan, that's fine. If you're, especially if you're well trained beforehand, because you're not practicing Heavy singles, for instance. It's just not happening. <clears throat> you mentioned space repetition learning in the med school podcast. Can you discuss your personal preferences in implementing this method or provide general meth- uh, recommendations? Yeah, so in medical school, I used a service called – uh, it was called gunner training. It's now called firecracker, basically a bunch of pre-made flashcards that would have a question or a clinical scenario or whatever. And you would have to answer them. So you think about the answer that improves hippocampal remodeling, uh, retention, learning uh, retention. And then um, you flip the card over on the computer, right? And then it shows you the answer and it gives you an explanation and you read it. And then you rate it from one to five linear scale. So five is like, dude, I knew that like hands, you know, forwards, backwards, upside down. I don't need to see this thing for another 90 days or something like that. Or I never need to see it again. Uh, Or you rate it a one. You're like, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't see this thing tomorrow. And so then it's two, three, four, five. And you just rate things appropriately. Uh, So that's how I did it in med school. Let's see. Have my first meet on Saturday. Was wondering your recommendations for nutrition during the meet. Hey, I got a YouTube video uh, about what not to eat during meet day. And then I tell you what to eat. I wouldn't change anything about what you normally eat for meat day. Eat normal foods.
0: If you're predominantly
1: a low bar squatter, how often would you program in high bar or front squat into a blocker program? It really depends on like who we're talking about. If we're talking about a person who's never going to a powerlifting meet, I would include those variations right now and keep them in there. I see no reason to only do the low bars back squat. Uh, if we have somebody who's going to a powerlifting meet and they lift more using low bar, then I think the further out you are from a meet, the more variation that you can have. So that's how I feel about it. I I don't, I think if you're not going to sign up for a powerlifting meet, then I I don't know that making the compromises necessary in your training to train like a powerlifter is a great thing to do uh, for extended periods of time. For short periods of time, sure. But I think. I don't think that's the best way to go unless you really just love it. But then I would compete. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. All right. I can never feel tension in my hamstrings in a squat. Why could that be? Because they don't really change that much length during a squat. And it doesn't matter if you can feel it or not. That would be my answer. What is the margin of error for DEXA? I think I I think I recall that it's plus or minus 3%. It's worse in older folks. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's it. Protein shake right before bed, uh, bed. good idea or bad idea? There's a couple studies on this. Um, in general, if it helps you hit your total daily protein intake, like the recommended – the, the your ideal intake, then it's good. If it doesn't, if it puts you over your total daily calories or you otherwise would have hit your protein intake without the shake, then it's it, – bad is a strong word. But if it puts you over on calories – you know, generally bad. So, can be both good or bad. <sighs> can I run the 12 week strength back to back? Sure, you can. Yeah. How soon out from a meet would you rec- introduce knee wraps into squat training? Yeah, six to eight weeks out, start training with wraps. Would I wrap multiple times a week? It really just depends on your history with training the wrapped squat. If you've never done it before, I think you can make a stronger case for wrapping twice per week, you know, on both of your priority squat days. And I think, uh, that's reasonable. On the other hand, if, uh, you're not using really stiff wraps or if you have used wraps a bunch before, then maybe you just wrap once per week. Yeah. Yeah. According to Dexa, I'm 25.6% body fat. After my meat in three weeks, should I try to lower body fat, gain weight, or maintain? Five foot eight, 177, BMI is 26.3, 31 inch waist, 38 inch hip. No waist measurements, relatively low. I don't know. It kind of sounds like you're a little untrained, to be honest. Like 25.6% body fat's pretty high. Uh, but you're, and you're, and you're in the overweight category. You're not at any increased risk from carrying too much body fat right now based on your waist circumference and your BMI. Um, But I don't know that gaining weight is a good idea for you just given that amount of body fat. I'd probably try to reduce body fat or if I was relatively new to training, I would consider um, training while you maintain your weight. And I would hope to see that your body fat came down as your muscle mass went up. Um, ways that you would identify this is that your waist circumference would actually go down as your weight stays about the same. Why are you not a fan of Harley Davidson's? Um, I think that for the money, they don't handle very well. Their motors are not, you know, high performance motors. They break down more frequently than, uh, their less expensive counterparts, um, the culture seems cool. Like, those people seem great. I just don't love the Harleys. Like, it's just. I, I don't love my Triumph either. I like the way it looks. Like, it looks cool, but it's not. I mean, I've even done a bunch of stuff to the motor, and it's just real slow compared to a, an actual crotch rocket, which I, I like. And uh, I leased both of my vehicles. Yes, the, the car and my truck, I both leased, but I did buy the bike. I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to make people mad with this, the Harley Davidson comment. I just just know it. I can feel it. Mm -mm. Did you see Chris Beardsley's last post that aerobic training blunts resistance training due to CNS fatigue? Uh, Yeah, but that's not exactly what that says. And we already kind of knew that, that especially if you're untrained, that doing activity between workouts tends to cause additional fatigue. I think that if you're – Underdeveloped from a respiratory standpoint, I would address that immediately, unless you had a meet like within the next two weeks. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much my thoughts on that. What's a good way to explain to your lifter why foam rolling, trigger points, etc., make a workout feel better but are almost useless? I, I probably wouldn't talk about it. I would just, I, and I, unless they ask you, if they don't ask you about it, then. I wouldn't say anything about it. Like, I don't know if proactively bringing it up is useful um, unless it's compromising their ability to train and you're their coach and it's your job to do that. So I think that I would couch it in a way like, hey, what do you know about foam rolling? What do you know about trigger point? You know, uh, therapy, I guess, is what they call it. And they may, may say, hey, I actually don't know anything about it. Can you tell me? And that's a learning opportunity. They may say, hey, I know this, this, and this. They might offer you some learning opportunities in there. So, yeah. You and Baracky told Alan in his last video, y'all prefer conventional to sumo. Do you have specific reasons for this or is it simply your preference? It's just our preference. I mean, when I first started lifting, I only did sumo. I thought that's how you deadlifted. And in a year, I, did, I think I pulled 545 sumo in Nike shocks. So, uh, that being said, like I think we both prefer to pull conventional now. There's nothing wrong with sumo. You can live a full and complete life only pulling sumo deadlifts. But, you know. Will Jess Griffith be at the Brooklyn Seminar? Uh, I don't think so. She's going to be games training, yeah. Let's see. Can I add a training slot to the bridge 3.0 to incorporate both bench and press variations on day three? I want to press focus, but I think it's too early to specialize. I probably wouldn't add a slot to the Bridge 3.0 just to press in because I wouldn't expect that to improve your press anyway in the context of that program. And I guess what I would say to a developing lifter is that I don't know if it's worth putting so much importance on performance in specific lifts, uh, unless you have a competition coming up. Yeah. I mean, if it's the, if it, if it improves your compliance and that's what gets you motivated to go to the gym, then all right, cool. We'll make that compromise, but yeah. Are there any Barbell Medicine stickers? There are. Yeah, we've got some stickers. Maybe I'll hook you up, huh? Have you heard of N-Suns? If so, what are your thoughts? Uh, I don't know what that Yeah. is. Let's see. What types of changes can we expect on the new templates? Oh, yeah, so a lot of things. So the latest update to the templates allowed people to use half, like, partial RPEs. We've got kilos. We've got... Uh, the, uh, acute on chronic workload trackers, all of that. So basically what I did is I took the existing templates and I, I, what I want, I wanted to make like a developmental system, right? So like from beginning to end, like how would I program for somebody if they just wanted to follow our templates? They never wanted any like one-on-one coaching sort of advice, which, you know, there are people who want the coaching. They want, you know, form review. They want that interaction. They want specific stuff tailored to them based on their, you know, you know, goals and experience and previous uh, exposure to training and all that other sort of stuff. But some people don't, right? Some people want templates. So I was like, all right, we need a developmental system for like from beginning to end. So beginner program that's coming out with a like, you know, pretty substantial PDF that comes with it explaining like why we did what we did. Then, uh, we've got, effectively three separate paths that you can go down. There's a hypertrophy path, there's a strength path, and then there's an, a conditioning path. And so like in the hypertrophy path, you have the actual hypertrophy programs, hypertrophy one, hypertrophy two, hypertrophy one is three day, hypertrophy two is four day. And then there's like an advanced hypertrophy template, which is more modifiable. But after you've already had some experience, so you can modify it yourself, right? Um, and then there's a the strength path. The first one is like a three day strength focused template. The second one strength two, there's a press focused one and a powerlifting focused one. And then there's an advanced template, which again has more sort of user selects their own adventure kind of thing, um, because they've got that much expo- experience. And then there's power building templates that kind of split the difference between the hypertrophy and the, and the strength path. Then the conditioning templates, there's uh, going to be a strongman one working on that with Alan. There's the CrossFit one that uh, worked on with Jess. Um, there's the traditional endurance template. And so like I view the strongman and the CrossFit one to kind of split the difference between strength and conditioning. Um, and then there's uh, uh, the more traditional endurance one, which is just, you know, monostructural stuff. So yeah, it's going to be cool. I'm excited. All right, scroll up. What are your favorite pizza places in Brooklyn? So I don't have much experience in Brooklyn, uh, but it's got to be uh, – what it? is it? Luke, uh, is it Lucali's? Yeah, that's probably my favorite one in Brooklyn. In Manhattan, we like tore up a bunch of pizza places last time. We were like on a mission. And I really – honestly, I like Joe's the best. So – but Lucali's I think we're going to have to go back to in Brooklyn. Went to all the doctors – went to the doctors today for an MRI referral. Doc spent most of the consult telling me the dangers of creatine causing rhabdo. Creatine does not cause rhabdo. There you go. (laughs) It doesn't even really increase CPK levels, which would be part of the diagnosis of rhabdomyolysis uh, in addition to, like, muscle tenderness, edema, swelling, you know, stuff like that. Oy vey. Let's see. After gallbladder removal, would you recommend supplementing with lipase or ox bile to help fat digestion? I don't know that I would necessarily recommend either of those unless you needed to. Yeah. If the doctor didn't recommend them, I'm not familiar enough with the data on those supplementations to actually make a recommendation. I don't know if they routinely recommend people do that. Yeah. I'm not sure. Let's see, had a long conversation regarding the ACSM guidelines and cardiovascular benefits from strength training and looking for a place to start in the literature to back up these claims. I don't know what you said, so I don't know how to like back you up here. Uh, There's, if you want to look up like cardiovascular, uh, sorry, if you want to look up like mortality risk reduction um, due to cardio uh, cardiorespiratory fitness, like that would be a reasonable place to start. As far as cardiorespiratory adaptation secondary to resistance training, there that would be the search in PubMed. I don't have a paper offhand that I would just hand to you. Um, some people, that being said, some people will respond robustly to resistance training, and uh, they will have an improvement in their VO two max, improvement in their cardiorespiratory conditioning. Some people won't, and so I don't, I wouldn't expect that just everyone who trains hard with weights has a significant improvement in their cardiorespiratory ability. Yeah. Thoughts on ZMA. ZMA is junk. Little to no risk. Uh, I mean, if you overdose on magnesium or if the supplement's tainted with something. So, yeah, that's the thing. Like, people selling ZMA, that's a problem because it doesn't do anything. And uh, if it's contaminated, that can certainly harm people. Yeah, that's happened a bunch of times with uh, other supplements. So, have you considered making Franchise Gym? I have not. <laughs> yeah, not for me. Let's see. How did you get so proficient with Excel? Oh, yeah, just trial and error for sure. Uh, let's see. At what point should someone modify their programming rehab due to pain? Uh, well, if the pain experience is significant and is uh, compromising their performance significantly, it's impacting their ability to train normally. Then I think at that point you have to right. So yeah, I don't. There's not like a hard cutoff. Like oh, at this point, you have to make a change. So all right, we've been on this for a while now. Uh, thank you for tuning in again. I'm Jordan Feigenbaum with Barbell Medicine. If you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, please do that. Newsletter goes out tomorrow. Very exciting stuff in there. Uh, and then we'll have our new podcast tomorrow, uh, April 5th. If you're listening to this in the future, well, you already know that anyway. See you guys later on. Take it easy. All right. Thanks for listening to the barbell medicine podcast. Please head over to iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating and a review it really helps us out. And we'll catch you guys on Friday with an all new podcast. See you guys later.